today. So we've got Professor Marcus Wagner, who is an associate professor at the University of Miami School of Law, and it's great to have him come all the way from Miami to come and speak to us on the topic that you see up there. Uh, he works in international law in this, in this field as well as in international economic law. Um, he has worked at the Israeli Supreme Court where he clerked for perhaps the most distinguished president of that court, Aaron Barak, who's written numerous judgments on international humanitarian law. And uh, Marcus was there in 2006, I think, at the, at the Israeli Supreme Court. I told Marcus yesterday that I am, um, you know, I'm in admiration of his academic work, but for me, his most distinguished accomplishment, and I'm not sure he took this as a compliment, but I intended as a compliment, his most distinguished accomplishment was that in 2008, just before we met, actually, he cycled all the way from Germany to China. Um, how many thousand miles? Just under 10,000. Just under 10,000 miles. And I asked him back again, and he said, no, just one way. <laughs> but thank you very much for coming, Marcus. And over to, over to you. Well, thank you, Dapo, for, uh, for inviting me. Um, and, and let me thank you and Jennifer for the great privilege. At some point, I hope you will uh, you will say that some kind of accomplishment is also my writing, and I don't have a spike <laughs> I and, and, uh, but, but let me just jump uh, right into this. Uh, the title of my talk is The Battlefield from Afar, um, Independently Operating Weapon System uh, and the Law of Armed Conflict. So the military landscape, I think, uh, has undergone a considerable number of changes. We see um, 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 uh, asymmetric warfare, the traditional paradigm uh, of protracted interstate war with large armies on both sides. Uh, has, to a certain extent at least, been replaced by opponents which are much more flexible. Um, and, the f and finally, the means with which armed conflict is being carried out has undergone significant modifications already, one of which I'm going to be talking about today, namely uh, uh, what we know as drones, quote-unquote, uh, and what we see in the future, uh, namely autonomous uh, weapon systems. Um, and so this is a brief overview uh, after this introduction. I'm going to talk very briefly about the current state of technology and future trends, and uh, then go into what I call dehumanization uh, in two dimensions, namely the legal and the moral dimension, before offering some concluding remarks. Um, so the, the, the phenomena, phenomena that, we, that we're most familiar with are probably the unmanned aerial vehicles. Uh, they fly reconnaissance mission to, the, to a very large extent, and a number of smaller missions are carried out um, that are carried out are armed attacks. The operator sits thousands of miles away, uh, depending on whether it's carried out by, by the Air Force, it's in Nevada, uh, or in Virginia, in the case of the CIA. Um, but regardless of whether uh, a un, uh, an unmanned system operates in the air, on land, or on or under the water. They share one characteristic. They're a visible piece of a network um, that operates, at least to this point, with direct human input. The next generation, however, of UMS are designed to operate wholly independently from human input. That means target selection, target acquisition, and a decision whether to employ weapon system and what type of weapon system at any particular moment in time will be done by an unmanned <coughs> system. 
the technology is either in place or in the process of being developed. Uh, the military leaders and political leaders repeatedly claim that this will not happen, that the human will remain in the loop, so to speak. Um, I think that mantra is starting to wane off, and certainly the last uh, report by the uh, Department of Defense by, of the United States is is very much uh, indicative of that when it speaks of uh, completely autonomous weapon system being uh, deployed in about 20 years from now. Now, let me go back um, very, very briefly with the history. There are certain vehicles before and during World War II that operated remotely. They did not operate autonomously, but operated remotely. Um, the first one uh, that I'm going to show you uh, is this. Uh, Nikola's Tesla uh, developed this uh, contraption, offered it to the U.S. and U.K. navies, um, uh, which both declined uh, for various reasons, uh, partially because they were blue water navies. Uh, the German military in World War II uh, took, this, uh, took this machinery on very handily. It also created what's called the Goliath, um, basically a bomb trapped onto uh, um, or strapped onto this contraption um, driving on with the uh, connected by a line not remotely operated by uh, by, by other means but with a, through through a wire uh, and then would explode next to a tank um, all of these were single use um, and and didn't do much in terms of extending uh, extending human capabilities as far as, as, as uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but at this time already what we saw were statements to the effect that um, this war may have been fought by heroes flying around in planes, the next may be fought by airplanes with no men in them at all. That statement may have been premature, but we're slowly uh, coming to see this reality. Now. Uh, let me just offer a very brief definition uh, what I'm going to be speaking about. Um, I'm going to follow the Department of Defense again uh, and, and say that um, it's an electromechanical system that is able to exert its power to perform design missions uh, and includes uh, no human operator aboard and the system is designed to return or to be recoverable. That's un an unmanned system. The autonomous element thereof is um, wherein the UMS receives its mission from the human and accomplishes that mission with or without further human-robot interaction, the level of that interaction along with other factors such as mission complexity and environmental difficulty determine the level of, of autonomy for the UMS. So what you see is already a different type of, of uh, autonomy. We're either talking about remote-controlled as of today, semi-autonomous also already in existence, or really autonomous systems that are still uh, in the future. Um, also worthy, re worthy of remembering is that there's a spectrum, uh, that many of these systems that we're talking about operate on a spectrum that may go from remote control all the way to autonomous. Um, the so-called Aegis system uh, that some of you may be familiar with, and which I'll talk about uh, in a second, is, is one of those. This particular system uh, was became famous slash infamous um, when shooting down Flight 655 in 1988 off the Iranian coast, um, the uh, um, the system operated in 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 
semi-autonomous manner could have been interrupted by the crew, but wasn't because it was indicated that it um, that that the, the approaching airliner was an F-14. Uh, the system engaged and ultimately shot down uh, the plane, leading to uh, the death of 290 people. Um, Further um, systems that operate in a, a similar fashion are the Patriot missile system that shot down a British uh, tornado uh, in southern Iraq um, in 2003. Um, and so what you see is a development towards more autonomy. Um, NATO uh, at, uh, said currently at best this type of uh, autonomy is very ambitious and at worst improbable to achieve. <laughs> The U.S. takes a very different stance on this and, and, and moves ahead. So what we uh, see then are a variety of, um, of scenarios. Uh, on the left you see the, the current system and uh, future systems which operate one operator. In reality, it's more than one, far more than one, at least two for flying and targeting purposes um, at this point with Predator drones. Uh, all the way to um, a yet to be determined a determined time um, where the total number of pilots uh, that you see here only uh, slightly is 150 uh, for a total number that is uh, uh, in up to over a hundred uh, uh, drones. Um, so what are we, uh, this is an Air Force uh, slide, it's not a, sli a slide that I made up myself. Um, so what are we talking about? We're talking about um, reconnaissance and combat in, uh, in terms of, uh, of aerial vehicles. Um, um, we're talking about air vehicles that uh, have a very long flight time that operate from ground bases and communicate over satellites with their ground stations. Again, this could be half a world away. Uh, they're um, both reconnaissance, as I said, as well as combat, um, firing so-called Hellfire missiles, uh, but also laser-guided bombs with up to 500 pounds. Uh, this is the next generation um, that that is not yet deployed and has just uh, had its maiden flight not long ago on uh, um, uh, on the ground slash on ships. You see systems such as these installed. This is the, the land-based version of the CRAM. And then you have um, unmanned ground vehicles, so far at least used for mainly for ordnance detection, but also designed to carry loads that otherwise would have, been, would have to be carried uh, by humans. Military planners like them, of course, because it's, uh, it increases the ability of soldiers to cover greater distances. Um, there is, of course, if you see a platform carrying uh, um, machinery, you also see a weapons-based system uh, that operates is designed to operate autonomously in the future. Uh, it's the very same platform that you see. Uh, the final pictures um, are smaller uh, bots that are already in, in operation. All of these are remote controlled still. And then, of course, some, some naval-based uh, uh, versions. Um, now, what are the rationales for the deployment? Um, um, the force multiplication is an obvious uh, element why these uh, systems are employed. The expansion of the battle space, uh, i.e. combat can be carried out in a larger area than before. Um, the reach of military weapon system. Um, 
usually means longer times being spent, uh, say in the case of UAVs, over a certain uh, target area, reduction of casualties. Um, after 2001, this uh, took off in a much, to a much larger degree than before because of the need for reconnaissance in asymmetric warfare. It is being said we no longer have armies standing on both sides, but rather you have asymmetric warfare, which means that uh, you may have to follow particular individuals or groups of individuals for a longer period of time. That increased the need for reconnaissance, uh, so the narrative goes, and then therefore increased the need for these, uh, uh, for these vehicles. They also uh, possess higher capabilities um, in terms of detection. Um, some say it's a morale boost. Uh, the British Army, uh, there's, there's, there are interviews with British Army personnel that say it's a morale boost to have um, um, ground vehicles next to you or knowing that there are aerial vehicles above uh, that, that watch out over you. You also, of course, have the uh, rationale for the reduction of costs. Um, uh, think about pilots. If this is an obvious, think about pilots, right? Uh, the obvious example is it costs a lot to train a pilot. If that pilot gets shot down uh, and, it, it is, uh, and, and passes away, then, then you incur costs, but you also have uh, social security and pension pays. Um, you eliminate the costs associated with upkeep, uh, base upkeep and recruitment, uh, quite apart, of course, from the human costs involved. Um, finally, should the network be taken out, this is then the next step, you need uh, greater uh, autonomy of any such systems, meaning we're moving away from remote control to fully autonomous. Um, but consider this, on the other hand, a current system that operates um, to distinguish between friends and enemies based on the sound a weapon system makes. So say the... An, an AK system sounds very different from an M16. I've never been in the military, but I'm being told uh, people can distinguish that very easily. Um, the program is designed to distinguish based on that those characteristics. Um, you can easily make up scenarios where that uh, dichotomy may break down. Uh, an allied soldier may carry a Kalashnikov. An allied soldier may have to pick up that Kalashnikov because he or she ran out of ammunition, or vice versa, an enemy comes in picks up um, an M16 and will not no longer be engaged. Now, the extent of the use of UMS in current conflicts is, uh, is uh, dubious uh, at best to, to ascertain um, because there are no clear numbers. Um, if, if the fiscal side is any indication, then the Department of Defense, U.S. Department of Defense, will spend more than $5.4 billion on unmanned aerial vehicles alone uh, in 2010. Uh, compare that number with roughly 200 million in the 1990s. So you see a sharp increase uh, that of money that is being allocated. Um, uh, before uh, uh, Congress, in a hearing, a member of the administration said that every second of every day, 40, 40 predator serious aircraft are airborne worldwide. While the hours that various UAVs by the Air Force are in operation is more than tripled between 2006 and 2009, it stands now at 295,000 hours per year. That's still very minuscule compared to airplane flight time, but it's, uh, the indication uh, is that it's growing exponentially at this point. Um, the future of um, the future of autonomous weapon system 
is complicated, and I'm not going to talk much about it because a I'm not I'm a lawyer and I'm not uh, I'm not an engineer, uh, but um, there it. There's indications that about in about 10 to 15 years, intelligence experts say uh, technology will have reached a point in which systems will be able to fully act independently. Uh, I simply assume right now that this will happen. Uh, and again, uh, the indications are from the Department of Defense that this is actually uh, true. Now, let me turn um, to what I call dehumanization one, the legal dimension. Um, new technologies have always posed a challenge to the law of armed conflict. Uh, the LOAC rules were designed with an anthropocentric paradigm in mind. Uh, combatants squaring off face to face is certainly no longer the traditional paradigm. Um, and regarding UMS, we see roughly two tendencies and two uh, schools of thoughts over the question how to deal with them, legally speaking. Um, one is that unmanned systems require the creation of a completely new legal regime as the existing law is inadequate. The other school of thought says the existing body of rules is, fair, is fairly sufficient to capture these developments and it's essential to design unmanned systems that are compatible with the existing framework rather than the other way around. Um, according to that school of thought, there may not really be a need uh, for additional legislative action if it turns out that the approach taken by the body of the law of armed conflict overall, uh, i.e. one that doesn't focus on a single weapon system, at least usually, or technology, is adequate to deal with this uh, new development. Um, additional Protocol 1 spells out this requirement in more detail uh, in Article uh, 36, uh, which requires that any employment of a new weapon, means, or method of warfare that a country studies, develops, or acquires um, um, shall be uh, prohibited um, uh, if it runs counter to the principles laid down in, in, in the law of armed conflict. Um, now, more concretely, Article 48 of AP1, some of you I'm sure are familiar with it, I'll just uh, read that one out loud. Uh, um, puts forth some requirements. In order to ensure respect for and prosecution of the civilian population and civilian objects, the parties to the conflict should at all times distinguish between the civilian population and combatants and between civilian objects and military objects and accordingly shall direct their operations only against military objectives. So um, what you see is this uh, general rule being uh, fleshed out uh, Number one, with regard to the principle of distinction. Number two, with regard to the principle of proportionality. Um, and then there's an underlying aspect that I think permeates the law of armed conflict that I will deal with subsequently, namely that combat be carried out in a humane fashion. Um, the law of armed conflict, I think, is best described as a tension between two elements, namely military necessity on the one hand and humanity on the other. There's considerable disagreement where on this continuum between those two poles a balance should be struck. And there's disagreement to what extent excellent circumstances may play a role in finding that balance. Advances in military technology, uh, the topic of this talk, the acceptability of civilian casualties in the court of public opinion, and the role accorded to state sovereignty all play a role uh, in this. There appears to be a tendency, I would submit, um, and interpreting this area of the law 
in a less military-centric way than it has been in the past, and rather one that takes humanitarian considerations into account to a greater extent, at least, than, in the, than it has in the past. Some claim that this is evident by the change in designation that this legal field as such has undergone. We spoke of the law of war in the past. It moved on to the law of armed conflict and now oftentimes uh, designated as, the, as international humanitarian law. Um, this is somewhat counterintuitive, I think. Uh, if you look at the large-scale atrocities that we've all uh, witnessed and seen uh, in Cambodia, Somalia, the former Yugoslavia, Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, and the Congo, all of which uh, have uh, had civilians as the center of action in many, many instances. Whether computers, which are, I would, uh, I would uh, like you to recall, are much better on quantitative analysis rather than qualitative analysis, you hear me say this uh, a number of times, are capable of doing, of, of making this distinction remains an open question. And while there have been impressive advances in cognitive technologies, it remains to be analyzed whether the principle of distinction and proportionality can safely be entrusted to a digital code existing of zeros and ones. Uh, now, principle of distinction. Um, essentially, um, in simple terms, it mandates that military attacks distinguish between civilian targets and military ones. Uh, this clear theoretical line of distinction is oftentimes blurred by the circumstances of any particular engagement. Um, a variety of, of provisions uh, in AP1 speak to this uh, uh, notion, namely that indiscriminate attacks are prohibited under Article 51.4. Um, and furthermore, Article 52.2 uh, tries to take account uh, of the fact that um, uh, military objectives are only those that by nature, location, purpose, or use make an effective contribution to military action whose total or partial destruction, capture, or neutralization in the circumstances ruling at the time offers a definite military advantage. The element of use in this particular uh, provision makes clear that the law of armed conflict incorporates a dynamic element in, the, in that civilian objectives may become military ones if they're being used by the enemy for military ends. <coughs> the same applies obviously to individuals who, though one civilian, uh, can potentially be considered to directly participate in hostilities. However, the flip side, of course, is that even military bases could include non-military targets. Um, imagine any military base, uh, and, and you will see what I mean. Um, housing uh, of, of civilians or of, of military families, for example, uh, being being done on, on military bases. What does all of that mean for purposes of UMS uh, deployment? The system must, and it must do so under all circumstances, be capable of determining whether it can properly engage in such a distinction in accordance with Article 51.4, uh, of the additional protocol for those states that have ratified the treaty, of course, and for those that did not uh, must follow the parallel rule of customary international law. How do we achieve that? Well, the sensors, the guidance technology, and the ability to react to circumstances that may quickly change um, are important elements uh, in that context. Um, it must also then uh, determine whether a particular weapon that it may carry at any moment in time is able to 
to uh, to speak to that distinction uh, through its engagement, i.e., weapons that that are uh, too large or do not discriminate uh, would would be prohibited under the law of armed conflict. <laughs> and let it be clear that even outside of autonomous legal system, there's very little clarity in all of this. Uh, Peter Singer describes a situation in which a high-ranking uh, general uh, in uh, the U.S. gave orders to destroy a compound despite the presence of civilians, a considerable large, no, considerably large number of them, because insurgents entered and left openly carrying weapons in Afghanistan. The presence of insurgents uh, should have been the si a signal to the civilians, uh, the general said, that the compound was now a legitimate target. After a few hours, civilians should have realized this, should have moved away. Um, in my mind, this is a good example for the potential shortcomings. If a high-ranking general interprets a law of armed conflict uh, provisions pertaining to distinction in an, at the very least, dubious manner, it's not clear that the same mindset does not enter the code that may eventually determine what to do in similar situations. The machine will not say no to the orders of a commander. It will simply carry out what's been fed into it. So it all depends on the particular input um, uh, that, that we would see. Now, the principle of proportionality um, creates similar challenges. Um, the unmanned systems that we're talking about, autonomous unmanned systems, takes the challenges that UAVs are currently facing considerably further. It removes a combatant entirely from the individual decision-making process and shifts the burden off the decision-making process to the programming stage of the system software. The legal basis for the proportionality principle, as most of you uh, may know, is, again, additional protocol one. There's no uh, uh, actual mention of the proportionality principle, but it finds reflection in a number of provisions. Again, I'll, I'll, uh, I will read some uh, uh, for, for those who are not as familiar. Article 51.5b of uh, Additional Protocol 1 prohibits an attack which may be expected to cause incidental loss of civilian life, injury to civilians, damage to um, civilian objects, or a combination thereof which would be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. Now, excessive is the trigger term here. It's simply not clear what that term means in the abstract and can only be determined in the specific circumstances of a particular situation. Um, again, Article 57.2 speaks of uh, damage which would prove to be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. Um, some have suggested that the discrepancy between loss of life, injury, damage to objects on the one hand, and the direct military advantage anticipated must be clearly disproportionate. Um, the insertion of such a requirement, at least in my mind, uh, does nothing to solve the problem. Um, it, and if anything adds further confusion, the language simply does not uh, uh, bear that out. Um, reference to the Rome Statute, as some authors uh, make to Article 8 of the Rome Statute, I think, uh, is not very helpful either. The one good thing I can say for my own purposes right now, I don't have to decide this particular debate. Uh, because regardless of where you come out on this, a machine that we're talking about, an autonomous UMS, would have to be able to determine exactly what is excessive and what is not excessive uh, in a particular circumstance at a particular moment in time. Um, now, proportionality obviously plays a part in target selection. The program would have to be designed to anticipate all potential decisions, 
um, either by programming all of them in, which is uh, impossible to do, or by designing a decision-making process and decision rules that are capable of making such decisions with a myriad of factors to be weighed. Um, um, it also, proportionality also plays a role in determining what extent of civilian losses are acceptable in any given situation. The law of armed conflict does not as such prohibit um, uh, the taking of civilian lives. It also needs to take account which weapon should be deployed, uh, namely this autonomous weapon system in the future would have to know which weapon has what type of effect on what type of terrain under what type of circumstances. All of this may be easy in the abstract, but the close proximity and the closer proximity compared to the past of civilians may make this determination much more difficult uh, now and in the future. Um, finally, if any uh, of these decisions could not be made, uh, the default in such a system would have to be, I cannot make this decision, I will then have to refer it back to a human decision maker which would have to have all this information. Again, we're talking about a network technology that would have to shoot that information back to, uh, to a human operator. Now, all of these rules refer to qualitative assessments rather than quantitative ones. Uh, and what this means is that fully autonomous UMS may be used in situations in which a target is completely remote and the situation appears with the potential for minimal or no civilian involvement at all i.e. in cases of certainty uh, over such circumstances at the beginning of the mission. This in turn would preclude the use of fully autonomous UMS in all uh, other situations, which I submit constitute the very large majority of all the cases that we're talking about. Uh, the case that I just outlined is extremely rare and, and, uh, and, and can be expected to occur only very, very infrequently. So this aspect of the legal framework is highly subjective, uh, even more so than the principle of distinction. It requires military expertise, experience, legal expertise uh, as essential to that decision making. And even engineers that write in this particular area can see that the principle of proportionality clearly highlights the difference between quantitative and qualitative decisions and the need for human decision making. Now, let me very briefly touch on uh, command responsibility. Um, I will keep this extremely brief. Um, um, namely, who's to be held responsible uh, in case uh, a, a, a violation of the law of armed conflict, conflict were to apply? If I say the machine itself, I hope you will uh, bear with me. There are proposals out there that the machine itself should be punched. I don't know how that works. Um, how you establish criminal responsibility when most legal systems require intent is beyond my comprehension. Uh, the traditional deterrence factors do not work vis-a-vis -vis an autonomous unmanned system, which in, is in a powerful uh, element of, of criminal law and ultimately the law of armed conflict. Um, a machine cannot be punished, nor does it possess moral agency. So there's, uh, there are a variety of factors that mitigate against uh, holding the machine accountable, quote-unquote. Um, now, there's a scientist or the programmer who developed the software upon which the robot relied. Um, the design 
is ultimately the foundation, foundation upon which a robot makes its determinations. But as a programmer, I would want to be indemnified from criminal responsibility once I hand that particular system over to the military. Um, military officers, finally, who set the parameters for a given engagement um, um, are probably the ones that, that would have to be held accountable. But again, this is, uh, there's no debate, and I understand my comments right now as, as conversation starters. Um, finally, um, I, I very briefly in the paper touch upon state responsibility. I don't take that uh, as, as highly controversial that the state that employs a particular weapon system will, would be held uh, liable under, under the rules um, uh, of state responsibility. A secondary question that again may flow from this is whether if the software code, for example, was faulty, whether a state can recuperate any uh, any liability from from uh, the designer of that particular system. Uh, finally, there are um, institutional concerns that I want to raise. The International Committee of the Red Cross has been fundamental in the past to uh, shaping the rules uh, of the law of armed conflict. There are very few indications until now um, that the ICRC has recognized the potential future challenges that autonomous UMS actually represent. If, as Singer uh, reports, the response to the phenomenon is, there is so much terrible going on these days, why waste time on something crazy like that? <coughs> then that is deeply disconcerting. Um, and if the developers and manufacturers of today's systems are not tied into a network that gives, at the very least, some rough guidance on the principle that permeate the law of armed conflict, uh, this development is, is even more disconcerting because software oftentimes is very much front-loaded because you need to design the software in a certain way that takes account of these facts early on. Now, let me move on to the moral dimensions um, of uh, autonomous weapon system namely what I call dehumanization through the removal of individual from the battlefield, question mark. Historically, we've always seen uh, humanitarian law as an anthropocentric endeavor. The taking the person out of the equation by relying upon a computer chip or its software code could increase the likelihood a state will resort to force as its citizens are not necessarily being placed at risk any longer. Note, for example, the increased reliance of developed states on bombing campaigns uh, in the late 20th century, NATO bombing campaign in the Balkans, and the US-UK uh, bombings of Iraq. Um, Azaro examines all of this in terms of whether autonomous UMS alter pre-conflict proportionality cal calculations and, uh, and, the, uh, and reverting to war only as a last resort. If the loss of human life is an impediment to going to war, uh, I made a similar argument with respect to uh, to, um, uh, to private military contractors. If the loss of human life is an impediment to going to war, there the argument is it's not lo no longer our soldier. It's no longer the blood of the nation that's being uh, that's being lost, but the dog of war. Uh, if the loss of human life is an impediment to go into war, then sending an army of machines to war rather than friends and relatives may not exact the same physical and emotional toll on a population. If the cause is just, uh, one could celebrate this new calculus, which more readily permits legitimate self-defense, but this reduced cost may in turn reduce the rigor with which nonviolent alternatives are pursued and thus encourage unnecessary and therefore uh, unjust wars. 
Second, there may be a dehumanization through the decision-making taking place through an algorithm based on zeros and ones. This problem is not quite the same as the one that removal of soldiers has raised through e.g. being in a plane and not seeing the devastation that any action may cause. But as distance increases, it oftentimes becomes psychologically easier to deal with the aftermath of one's action. And if we remove ourselves one step further by creating a code that carries out uh, that particular action, uh, you see where, where the argument is heading. Now the question is, does it really take the person out of the equation? Uh, you can say it's the operator or the military personnel which has decided to set the parameters for a particular engagement. Um, there's also uh, an, a concern of what I call loss of the battlefield. Uh, individuals no longer fight on the battlefield, but rather are 20 minutes away from home. Uh, and, and again, there's, there's descriptions fairly vividly where the drone operator lives very close to, to where, where he works now. Right? There's no longer a physical, even a physical distance off the flight home that used to be the case uh, when engaging. And so 20 minutes after, make it an hour, uh, after uh, having engaged in combat uh, via remote control, he sits down or she sits down with their kids over, over dinner. Uh, and for some soldiers that created uh, a considerable amount of stress. Um, now, the question then turns to whether uh, we can create ethical robots. Um, there are a number of researchers that say, yes, that is perfectly possible. Um, and uh, one uh, author in particular in this area is, it has become fairly prolific, uh, Ronald Arkin, argues that the use of unmanned systems will increase the ethical behavior on the battlefield for the following reasons. The autonomous uh, unmanned system does not need to protect itself. UMS are emotionless and nothing can cloud their judgment. This is very similar to an argument uh, put forth by Walter, namely that fear and hysteria are always latent in combat, often real, and they press us toward fearful measures. Taking out the human psychological element of scenario, what's called scenario fulfillment, which is believed to have contributed to the incident that I mentioned before in the downing of Flight 655 by the U.S.'s Vincent's in 1988. Uh, the phenomenon leads to distortion or neglect of contradictory information in stressful situations. Humans use new and incoming information in ways that only fit the pre-existing belief patterns, a form of premature cognitive closure. Autonomous UMS, so the argument goes, can be developed so that they are not vulnerable to such uh, patterns of behavior. Um, due to the increase in sensoric abilities, another argument is UMS will have the ability to observe all relevant aspects and if not, certainly a greater ability than, have a greater ability than humans. Um, the data can arise from multiple remote sensors and intelligence, all of which have to work together uh, through uh, what's, what the U.S. Army develops at this point, the Global Information Grid, um, um, which in itself is a, is a, is a uh, technological challenge at this point. Um, then there's an argument which uh, I will let you decide what you make of it. When working in combination with humans, so the argument goes, um, UMS may have the ability to reduce the number of unethical behavior patterns by humans through reporting mechanisms. 
uh, autonomous UMS have the potential capability of independently and objectively monitoring ethical behavior in the battlefield by all parties and reporting infractions that may be observed. Uh, there is an anecdote that this actually happened in Iraq um, whereby a, a ground-based vehicle was actually filming a U.S. soldier kicking some, uh, a, a civilian in the head. Uh, it was later reprimanded and, and punished. Uh, so you see where the arguments are coming from. Finally, um, Arkin argues that uh, in 2006 the U.S. Army studied uh, it, the behavior uh, of its forces and found that approximately 10% of its forces had knowingly mistreated civilians at some point or another. Based on that, uh, Arkin suggests that so long as artificial intelligence doesn't attack civilians or friendlies more than the current uh, uh, risk, namely 10% of the time, armed uh, um, artificial intelligence-driven robots would be preferable to human soldiers because it will lower the new poten net potential for harm. The question that I would simply pose, this is really the benchmark that we want to employ in these situations. There's, before I come to, to my conclusion, uh, one final concern that I want to raise, namely what I call the feedback loop, uh, namely the impact that um, autonomous weapon systems may have themselves on the law of armed conflict. Now, the indeterminacy of the rules of armed conflict, as uh, you gathered, hopefully, from what I tried to explain, uh, especially as it pertains to the principle of proportionality, may have consequences that go beyond the immediate uh, decision over whether to attack a particular target or not. And generally speaking, indeterminacy of legal rules, of course, does undermine their efficacy, and this may even be more so in the realm of the law of armed conflict, in which situations oftentimes require expeditious decisions decisions which may also concern the lives of human <clears throat> beings. Whether, as Thomas Frank posits, the principle of proportionality has truly matured into an advanced degree uh, is, I think, a matter of debate. But following Frank, the argument would be that an increase in the transparency that virtual technologies brings with them also increases the compliance pull that is exerted upon decision makers within states. However, the reverse may also be true. As this material is oftentimes classified and acts highly controlled, the increase in transparency may not be as great as may be anticipated. More importantly, even uh, may, may, more importantly, even is the potential that the rules, as they are being reshaped through the introduction of autonomous UMS, may actually be giving less traction to proportionality over time, the, namely because the inability of autonomous UMS to carry out certain functions could be brought forth as an argument to circumvent the strictures of the law of armed conflict. Um, given that some authors and military lawyers follow a reading of the proportionality principle so that it prohibits attacks in only some cases, the potential, I think, for a decreasing traction is not wholly without basis. And now, this Judgment Day scenario that I hope you didn't get when you heard the title, uh, may is may not be a realistic concern, but I think it would also be foolish to dismiss the legal and ethical issues arising from armed autonomous uh, uh, weapon systems. The technology to implement such devices is currently either available or is in the process of development, and in the near future, advanced militaries will have the capability to employ such devices at their disposal. The paths they choose to follow could undermine decades of international humanitarian law and human rights development unless care is taken to ensure with a reasonable degree of certainty 
uh, compliance with international legal principles by the code that underlies the UMS, the autonomous UMS. This will, as has become evident, be either difficult or impossible to achieve, namely because the current design architecture does not build these concerns in at the front end of the projects currently involved. Um, the law is far from clear, sometimes even indeterminate. Some would say, in the US parlance, void for vagueness. <laughs> Furthermore, uh, attacks that have been carried out may have been approved by high-ranking military officers, but their legality may still be questioned. Um, it may be too late to take uh, a wait-and-see approach, uh, and maybe the genie is truly out of the bottle, but uh, sometimes it may be a good thing to be uh, a beaver, and that refers exactly to the statement by Donald Rumsfeld. With that, I'll close, and uh, thank you for your, uh, thank you for your uh, attention. <laughs>